Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Jonathan Wilson. I'm in this week for Rebecca Shear, and our theme for this edition of the show is energy. We'll delve into the district's plan to become the healthiest, greenest city, not just in the nation, but in the world. I think that's what will distinguish us between other cities who kind of talk the talk. We now we want to walk the walk now. And we'll visit a D.C. neighborhood in the midst of a demographic change to find out how newcomers can alter a community's energy. They don't talk to me. So I do feel uncomfortable. Plus, we'll talk with members of the city's 100 Club, residents who've reached a triple-digit birthday, to find out how much energy is needed to live a long, happy life. I don't hold back anything. I tell it like it is. Sometimes that's good, sometimes it isn't. First, though, we're going to delve into some of the recent energy-related debates swirling around our region. Debates about hydraulic fracturing or fracking in Maryland and uranium mining in Virginia. We'll begin here. This is pretty typical from Garrett County. The blanket of snow underfoot amplifies the feeling of rural serenity as I trudge to the top of a hill with Billy Bischoff and his mother Joyce and take in a panoramic view of their 300-acre dairy farm. There are some people who worry this pristine environment in Garrett, Maryland's westernmost county, is in grave danger of being ruined by the energy industry. That perspective irks the Bischoffs. Billy turns in a circle, pointing out that even here in the beautiful rolling hills of western Maryland, if you look closely, you can see that industry is already everywhere. People say that we're going to spoil our neighborhood by having a gas well. But there's our farm. There's a sand plant. Just over here is an asphalt plant. Our dairy farm is over there. So it's not as if there is no impact here at all. We gotta, we have to come to some kind of equilibrium on this issue. The Bischoffs are among the most outspoken landowners in the county arguing that the shale gas recovery technique of hydraulic fracturing or fracking should be allowed to move forward. In 2008, the family was preparing to join a group of landowners who bargained to lease 30,000 acres to gas companies looking to drill into the portion of the Marcellus Shale that sits underneath Garrett County soil. It was a deal that would have netted landowners $30 million. But the deal fell through as the nation's financial collapse kicked into high gear. Joyce Bischoff says it was also around that time that environmental concerns triggered a backlash against fracking, one that she feels quickly became hysterical. As things developed and this became a political situation, I feel that it really became unbalanced. I feel that if we're going to look at any subject, we have to look at all aspects of it, and I don't think that's been done on a state level. That's starting to change from Joyce's point of view. She applauds the work of the governor's Marcellus Shale Advisory Commission, which includes environmental experts, state and local officials, and industry leaders. But Billy Bischoff says there's still one aspect of the discussion that's often lost on Marylanders in other parts of the state, one that has to do with local economic history. And it's the fact that the oil and gas industry has already been a part of the Garrett County economy for decades. There are 250 gas wells in this county, and that eventually developed into a natural gas storage field, which for many years was the largest property taxpayer in the county and has provided uh, stable jobs for 30-some years now. And there are two transmissions lines and a compressor station in the county. We do have 
a history of working with gas in this county, and we know a little bit about it. The fact remains, however, that right now it is natural beauty that drives much of the local business here. Garrett County is home to Deep Creek Lake, the site of hundreds of vacation homes, and WISP, a mountain resort that brings skiers in the winter and golfers in the summer. It means tourism accounts for close to 60% of the local economy. Joyce Bischoff says it also means there's a distinct divide on fracking between property owners who live off the land and those who've moved here to simply enjoy it and don't want to see the land touched. And that concerns me a lot because I see that whole um, situation getting a little tense. And I think we all need to sit down at the table and come up with some solutions here. Drive a few towns farther south in the county and you'll find Eric Robeson. He says some of the worst tension exists between the local families who've been here for generations and those still seen as outsiders. I've been here for 15 years and I am definitely classified as being very new here. We have people that have been here for 35 years, raised their children, and they're still not a part of that system. Robeson, a construction company owner, is unafraid to stir the pot and was among the first residents to ask public questions about the lack of regulatory oversight on fracking in Maryland. Citizen Shale, a coalition of property owners that he leads, voiced concerns that helped lead to the existing temporary suspension of fracking in Maryland and the formation of the governor's Marcellus Shale Advisory Commission. When I hear a property owner talking about this is my right to develop my resource, we're not wanting to exclude their right We're just wanting to make sure that everybody's rights are taken into consideration with their right. Robeson says he isn't opposed to fracking altogether, but proponents need to remember that if something goes wrong, the problem isn't likely to affect just one property owner or company. During the fracking process, chemicals and grit are pumped into the shale thousands of feet below the ground, cracking the rock open and releasing natural gas back up through a well. Environmentalists say if the drill piping isn't properly installed or cracks for other reasons, all the chemicals used in the process can seep into the water supply. There's plenty of debate over exactly how often that has happened, but Robeson says the risks are real. We privatize the profits and we socialize the problems. When we get into this type of industry, you know, if there's an event where there's a spill, A spill does not respect property lines, doesn't respect state borders, doesn't respect what we value, and we have to make sure that we have the proper regulatory oversight and conditions in place for that type of development. Robeson says he's a realist and believes banning shale gas drilling forever isn't truly an option. It is a resource. We will develop it. You know, whether we develop it in the next three years or the next 30 years, we will develop it. Robeson says he's okay with that, as long as the state makes sure things are done safely. And believe it or not, Joyce Bischoff says she's not in a terrible rush for shale drilling to begin anyway. We don't care if it takes some time, but we want it done objectively. And a moratorium is just the wrong thing. A legal moratorium that then you have to legally undo is just the wrong way to go about things. Governor O'Malley's Marcellus Shale Advisory Commission is scheduled to deliver its final report on the environmental and economic impacts of allowing fracking in Maryland in August of next year. Both Robeson and the Bischoff say they're anxiously awaiting the commission's findings. Just don't expect them to wait quietly. Eric and Billy both make regular trips to Annapolis to share their views with state legislators. 
In just a bit, we'll turn to a different energy debate happening in Virginia, one having to do with uranium mining. We're going to press the fast forward button now and head to the D.C. of 2032. That may sound dizzyingly far off in the future, but District Mayor Vincent Gray is planning ahead. By that year, he says, D.C. will be the healthiest, the greenest, the most livable uh, city in the world, not just the United States, uh, but in the world. That was Mayor Gray speaking last month when he released a 120-page document laying out a plan 17 months in the making called Sustainable D.C. Jacob Fenston takes a look at those ambitions and what they may mean for our energy future here in the nation's capital. All right, here we go. Mike Barrett is opening up the stairs through his attic to the roof of his Capitol Hill row house. Can I come up? Yep, come on up. Up here, it's covered with solar panels. If you want me to grab anything, let me know. Barrett installed 19 panels back in 2010. That was about half of my home's electricity powered from those. But two years later, he decided that wasn't enough. He wanted to get as close to 100% solar as possible. I put on another 13 panels in the back of the roof. That's probably got me up around 80%, maybe close to 90%. From Barrett's roof, if you look out across the neighborhood, you can see other solar panels poking up above historic row house facades. My neighbor, two doors down from me, put in a system My neighbor across the street put in a system, and in this Capitol Hill neighborhood, I think we've got at least 70 of these up now. As neighbors learned about Barrett's solar panels, they started asking for tours of the roof and then installing their own systems. Part of the reason? It can be a very good investment. Barrett says possibly better than the stock market. Back downstairs, Barrett shows me on the computer how he can track his energy production in real time. Starting in March, I'll have a negative bill. In the hottest months of summer and the coldest months of winter, he might actually owe something on his electric bill. But the rest of the year, I pretty much don't have an energy bill. Mayor Gray's sustainable D.C. plan calls for adding 1,000 renewable energy projects like solar panels to district houses, apartments, and commercial buildings. It would also increase the proportion of clean and renewable energy used in the district to half of the city's total energy pie by 2032. That could mean many more than 1,000 solar installations, says Bill Updike with the District Department of the Environment. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the goals in the plan are visionary goals. You know, they're not easy goals, and they shouldn't be. Currently, he says, solar panels in the district produce just 5 to 10 megawatts of energy. To reach the goal of 50% renewable power could require hundreds of megawatts of solar. That's a lot of panels. Why aim low, right? The Sustainable D.C. plan came together through months of meetings with hundreds of volunteers from the community and government officials. Updike, who chaired the Energy Working Group, says D.C. is already a national trendsetter in some areas. We have the most LEED-certified green buildings, for example. We blow all the other cities away. But the goals present a number of challenges. One is that renewable energy is still expensive up front. Even with the D.C. government rebates and federal tax credits, an average solar panel system can cost $5,000 out of pocket. That's something the D.C. Sustainable Energy Utility is working to change. The group created by the District Council in 2008 offers rebates on efficient light bulbs and washing machines, 
They also work to make solar more accessible. Ted Trebu, managing director of the Sustainable Energy Utility, says solar technology isn't evenly distributed in the city. In most wards... Ward 1, Ward 2, Ward 4, Ward 3, Ward 6... There are between 150 and 200 homes with solar panels. By contrast... In Ward 7 and 8 combined, only 11 homes had solar panels. Now, many more do. DCSU installed panels on 87 homes last year east of the Anacostia River. The other side of the energy equation, besides producing cleaner energy, is, of course, using less of it. But that doesn't always generate as much excitement. We've definitely seen that in our work. Elizabeth Lindsay with the organization Groundswell. We do work with homeowners and renters and help them to make their homes more energy efficient, and that is not as sexy as doing solar. People want to immediately put solar panels on their homes, but if their homes aren't efficient, where is that energy going? It's, it's still being wasted. On the efficiency side, Sustainable D.C. calls for cutting energy use in half in the next 20 years. Lindsay says it's a great goal, but many residents need more help to afford energy efficiency upgrades. In D.C., there's not a lot of financing, like low-cost financing or subsidies available for people, so it's actually quite expensive. The district's goal to cut energy use in half in the next 20 years lines up with President Obama's goal for the nation set out in his recent State of the Union address. And a lot of other cities have plans, too, according to Nicole Steele with the Alliance to Save Energy. Uh, New York City, San Francisco, Austin, Chicago, all the big cities have big plans. The Alliance has its own plan as well. It was released in January and seeks to double energy productivity by 2030. It can mean the same thing, but it's about rebranding energy efficiency. She says all of these plans and targets and goals can be good motivators. If you don't set a goal, you're not going to meet it. But plans can also be just plans, documents that collect dust. Elizabeth Lindsay with Groundswell says now it's time for the next step, putting the plan in action. I think that's what will distinguish us between other cities who kind of talk the talk. We now we want to walk the walk now. I'm Jacob Fenston. Want to learn more about energy efficiency or how to get started with your very own solar installation? Check out our website, metroconnection.org. Time for a break, but when we get back, we'll head to Virginia's Pittsylvania County, where the political debate over uranium mining can be deeply personal. People who are against it don't know what the hell they're talking about. That and more in a minute on Metro Connection, here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Jonathan Wilson, in today for Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection, where our focus this hour is on energy. We've already spent some time in Maryland and the district. Now we're going to head to Virginia, which is embroiled in a heated debate about how, if at all, it should take advantage of a potentially lucrative underground resource. But unlike the debate sweeping across Maryland, it's not shale gas that's at issue. It's uranium, the radioactive element that can fuel nuclear power plants. Virginia's uranium deposit isn't exactly a new discovery. Mining industry geologists confirmed its existence three decades ago. 
but Virginia's legislators still haven't given those who want to mine it the all-clear to start digging it up. And many environmental advocates say that's the way it should stay. Patrick Wales, for one, does not agree with those environmental advocates. He's walking down a gravel road in Chatham, Virginia, about 20 miles from the North Carolina border. That buzzing you hear isn't coming from a bird or an insect. It's coming from a device called a scintillometer, which measures very small changes in radioactivity. This is making a lot of noise, and and the numbers are going to be going up significantly. Wales works for Virginia Uranium. The company was founded by the Coles family, which has owned and lived on this piece of land, known as the Coles Hill property, since before the War of 1812. He walks a few more yards and lowers the scintillometer near some rocks by the side of the road. But put that down there and we're talking about, we're standing on a deposit right now that has over 22 times more energy than all of the oil and gas that's estimated to be off Virginia's coast. Located on, on 100 acres. That's pretty remarkable. Wales is a local himself and he bristles a little at those who suggest Virginia uranium and uranium mining proponents aren't worried about maintaining the natural beauty of rural Southside Virginia. He says it's that natural beauty that brought him back home after getting his geology degree out of state. I was one of those, like a lot of folks, who uh, went off to college thinking that would be the last time I ever saw Danville or or Southside Virginia. Uh, Because there are not a lot of opportunities for folks to make a living around here, and that's unfortunate. Will says the Coles Hill deposit could change that in a big way if the state lifts the moratorium on uranium mining, a moratorium that has been in place basically since the deposit was first discovered. Some estimates put the value of the uranium at Coles Hill at $7 billion, and that's value that proponents say translates into high-paying local jobs. There are not a lot of opportunities that have uh, the the chance to bring a 1,000 jobs to this area, and these are good-paying jobs. These are jobs that will pay $65,000 a year. You compare that to our median household income in this county, and it's uh, less than $30,000. Household income, not individual. Among local residents, it can be tough to get people to talk about the uranium mining issue, but not because there's any shortage of passion on either side. In fact, it's just the opposite. Yeah, we're good. Inside Pat's Place, a popular local lunch spot in the middle of Chatham, an elderly man sharing a meal with his wife blurts out his feelings on the uranium controversy. People who are against it don't know what the hell they're talking about. He won't give me his name, but he does give a reason. People who are against it are so against it, they knew my name, they'd probably burn my house down. And you're not joking? No! Drive through Chatham and you'll see dozens of green and yellow pro-mining yard signs. One slogan reads, I dig uranium. It's about jobs. But you'll see just as many black and white signs urging passers-by to say no to uranium mining. Gina Mays works as a waitress in the pizza shop across the street from Pat's Place. She says she'd like to see Coles Hill remain untouched. I think everybody should just leave it like it is. It's been just fine for years and years, and now everybody wants to change stuff. Cale Jaffe is the director of the Southern Environmental Law Center's Charlottesville office. He says the main problem with the Coles Hill site is its location within the watershed of the Roanoke River, which provides drinking water to 1.1 million people. Jaffe points out that the vast majority of material that would be brought out of the ground at the project would end up as waste product that would have to be stored on site. 
according to the National Academy of Sciences, the, the waste from that project retains 85% of its original radioactivity. And you've got to store that radioactive waste in the Roanoke River watershed in perpetuity. Patrick Wales of Virginia Uranium points out that a study by Virginia Tech shows that a properly placed waste containment facility built on site poses no risk to the water supply, even in the event of 38 inches of rain in 24 hours, a scenario not even approached during Superstorm Sandy. Wales says the Coles family and Virginia Uranium are in favor of even more research and independent study of the site before any mining begins. Jaffe says uranium mining is already one of the most closely examined environmental issues in recent Virginia history, and the results, he says, are in. We've spent millions of dollars in years in Virginia studying this issue, and the studies validate our core concerns, and that's why this year the General Assembly rejected an effort to lift the ban. But proponents still insist that momentum is building for their cause. Patrick Wales says it's important to remember that Virginians are no strangers to the benefits of nuclear energy. The state is home to two nuclear power plants and the nation's nuclear-powered naval fleet. It's really important to point out that uh, nuclear power is, is one of the safest, most reliable, affordable means of generating electricity. And, uh, and if we are going to, as a country, get very serious about uh, things like climate change, um, uh, nuclear may not necessarily be the answer, but there is no answer without nuclear. Now, Virginia Uranium and its opponents are waiting to see whether Governor Bob McDonnell will attempt to address the uranium mining moratorium by going around the legislature. Even if McDonnell holds off on taking up the issue, it will likely continue to be a bone of contention in this November's gubernatorial election. And the To see what the Coles Hill property looks like and to find out more about the uranium that it holds, visit our website, metroconnection.org. We're going to swing back into the district for our next story, which is about the energy of an entire neighborhood. The neighborhood in question is Mount Pleasant, and for decades it's been an enclave for Latino residents and businesses. But Mount Pleasant is changing. The most recent census data for this part of the city shows that Latino residents have gradually begun moving out to the suburbs because of rising housing costs, and more affluent white residents are moving in. And as Kate Sheehy reports, these changing demographics mean the culture of Mount Pleasant is changing as well. Miriam Ochoa and Rafael Rodriguez barely have time for a break during their 12-hour workday. They're the owners of DNS Accounting and Tax Services on the corner of Irving and Mount Pleasant Streets in northwest D.C. The business has been in Mount Pleasant since 1994, and they have lots of loyal customers. Most of my clients are Hispanic. I have uh, a few non-speaking Spanish uh, clients, uh, which is about 20%. But back then, it was only less than 5%. Rodriguez is from the Dominican Republic and has lived in this community for 31 years. He says there used to be only African Americans, Latinos, and a few Asian people here. But now, there's a little bit of everything, as he puts it. Rodriguez likes that Mount Pleasant is becoming more diverse. But he also worries that Latinos and whites are living side by side without understanding each other's cultures. 
they will come in and they will not care. Like when they put their business, they just want to make money. They don't care whether you move out or move in. They don't care about the other people, which is something that uh, it bothered me. Yeah, it bothered me when it comes to that. I like all of us uh, to enjoy the growth of the Mount Pleasant community. His partner, Miriam Ochoa, came to D.C. from El Salvador in 1980 when she was 15. Like many Central Americans in Mount Pleasant, she feels at home here. But she knows that demographic changes have made some feel unwelcome. And like I hear the comments here in my office, they are increasing their rent so high in Mount Pleasant because they want to kick us out of here. Ochoa says she likes trying new things and appreciates much of the progress made in her community. However, she fights back tears as she admits she has never felt accepted by her white neighbors. And like when it's a lot of snow, many times trying to make friendship, I clean the entire parking lot to see if, you know, they will come out and try to join me and they don't talk to me. So I do feel uncomfortable. I do feel that they don't want me here. And I have been here since 94. <laughs> Further up the street, next to the international grocery store Progresso, is one example of how Mount Pleasant is changing. A new restaurant, Bow Tai, opened here just a few weeks ago, and it has been busy. Co-owner Ralph Brabham says the neighborhood just felt right for his business. We loved walking down the street and seeing uh, people selling flowers or people selling bananas. or It, it, just, it, it just has a unique feel to it that is um, incomparable with throughout the rest of D.C. Brabham says he hasn't seen many Latinos come to the restaurant so far. He plans to post a menu in Spanish in hopes of bringing in more Latino customers. Whether that will be enough to lure them in is still an open question. A few buildings down from Bowtie, people get off the 42 bus in front of a 7-Eleven. It's a hangout spot for many Latino men when they get off work. They drink coffee and talk. Ricardo is from Nicaragua and has lived in Mount Pleasant for 16 years. He says he won't eat at the Thai restaurant. No, it's very expensive. My wife sent me to buy food there, but it was too expensive. It's not for us. It's for people who have money. But his friend Jose from El Salvador says he's curious and wants to try the food. Both men agree that the neighborhood has become safer as it's become more affluent. But life in Mount Pleasant is more difficult for them than it used to be. Not only the cost of living, but they say the police harass them for congregating outside the 7-Eleven. This is how we are. Here nobody's selling drugs or drinking. After work, we meet here. Another neighborhood meeting spot is Haiti Salvadoran Restaurant, across the street from Miriam Ochoa and Rafael Rodriguez's accounting firm. Haiti's has long been popular with Latinos, but many white residents also come here. Judy Byron is one of them. She's lived here since the early 1970s and witnessed the wave of Central Americans who arrived here in the 1980s. Byron says one of the things she loves most about living in Mount Pleasant is the Latin flavor, but she's not sure Latinos feel the same way about the growing white influence. I don't think the Latin American population puts their feet in the waters of sort of basically white middle class run places in the same way the white middle class that's moved in enjoys the texture of places like Progresso or Hades. 
Haiti Venegas opened this restaurant in 1990, and at the time, she says, most of her customers were Latino. Now her clientele is 80% white, but that doesn't bother her. I want to have a customer no matter what. Could be Latino, white, African, Asian. I love everyone. And like I say, my Latinos, they remember me and they come back when the special days, and I appreciate that. Perhaps it's been easier for Venegas to adapt to the loss of Latino customers because, well, she's still busy. This is exactly what her neighbors across the street, Miriam Ochoa and Rafael Rodriguez, worry about. The community will accept change and move on with or without Latinos. I'm Kate Sheehy. Time now for DC Dives. What is a dive bar? It's a glorious dump. It's got to have an interesting staff and an interesting crowd. It's got to be dark. It's got to be old. Typically, it's got to be cheap. This time, Jared Walker takes us to Vienna, Virginia, for a visit to what may be the most kid-friendly dive bar around. It's Friday night, and I'm at the Vienna Inn in Vienna, Virginia. The place is packed with customers. It's standing room only. But manager Katie Heron somehow pulls herself away from the bar just long enough to give me a quick history lesson. Mike and Molly Abraham opened the restaurant in 1960, and it's changed hands in May 2000, but the tradition stayed the same. And what is the tradition here? Tradition is casual, laid back. It's all inclusive. So you can be old, young, New to the area, lived here for 20, 30 years, and uh, you're always welcome. And the building itself? It's wooden, it's small, it's compact. Not a lot has changed since 1960. (laughs) Like most folks in this bar and restaurant, known for its chili dogs, cheap beer, and long communal tables, Casey Sampson is a regular. A real estate agent and local youth football coach, Sampson's been visiting this beloved neighborhood tavern for 45 years. It used to be back in the 60s, 70s that only the coaches would come in and adults would come in and kids weren't really allowed to come in here. The coaches didn't want the kids to see them drinking. Was it more of a beer bar? It was a beer bar and it was a a little rougher group. But Samson says that began to change when Mike and Molly's son Philip began working at the inn in the 1970s. Philip Abraham introduced an expanded menu and created a family-friendly environment that still exists today under current owner Marty Volk. And now everybody comes. It's a part of our identity. This is Vienna's clubhouse. And he means everybody. Tonight, kids of all ages are running around the Vienna Inn, many still wearing their youth baseball uniforms. Manager Katie Heron says there's a surprising equilibrium to the whole thing. I think the parents can relax and the kids can be distracted for a while, at least five or ten minutes. I don't think that they have to really tell their kids, you know, Keep your napkin in your lap, keep your hands folded, and please try and be quiet. (laughs) Kids can really participate in the restaurant, and they really like to do that. Tonight I'm sharing a table with patron Richard Peterson Creamer, who describes the unique contribution kids have made to the inn's aesthetic. The walls are covered in local teams' sports trophies, from, you know, Little League Baseball to probably some bowling leagues and everything in between. There's also placemats that kids have drawn on, drawn various pictures about how much they love Vienna Inn, and those get posted weekly or daily, I guess, all over the place. 
Other than that, the presence of the kids doesn't really seem to change much of anything. The room is still dimly lit, every table creaks and wobbles, and the inn has an eclectic and boisterous crowd. This could be any dive bar in the country, except, says Casey Sampson, for one key difference. You don't curse in the Vienna Inn, even if you're Washington Redskins Hall of Fame running back, John Riggins. John Riggins was here one night, and John Riggins threw the F-bomb out, and the whole place went quiet, because Molly wouldn't put up with that. So she came walking over, and he turned into an eight-year-old kid. He had to stand up, he had to apologize to the crowd, true story, apologize to the crowd for cussing, and she goes, all right, you can stay. Mind your manners, and you can stay all night at Vienna's unofficial clubhouse. I'm Jared Walker. You can check out photos of the Vienna Inn at metroconnection.org. And if you've got a favorite dive bar you think we should visit for this series, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is metro at wamu.org, or you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at wamumetro. Up next, just how much energy does it take to hit your 100th birthday? One of the reasons I think we live so long now is because we walked everywhere. Walked, walked, walked. We walked to school, we walked to church, we walked to stores. That and more is coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Jonathan Wilson, filling in today for Rebecca Shear. Our show is all about energy. We've already talked about local debates over how to derive the energy that powers our homes and offices. But what about the energy that powers us? Jill Colgan has the story of two people who have a whole lot of that type of energy, even after passing their 100th birthdays. On this sunny Sunday afternoon, George Bogus sits by his huge living room window, newspaper in hand, listening to his favourite music and enjoying his birthday, just the way he wants it. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm now 101 years old. His wife of 71 years, Dorothy, says her husband won't be quiet for long. He just loves company and he celebrates his birthday about three or four times a year. Born in Waco, Texas in 1912, Mr. Bogus won a scholarship to Howard University and made Washington his home. One of the reasons I think we live so long now is because we walked everywhere. Walked, walked, walked. We walked to school, we walked to church, we walked to stores. The World War II veteran is still mobile, troubled mostly by the ache in his right knee, a reminder of the Battle of the Bulge in 1944. Wounded, a shot in the right knee by a German bullet while up front, sending back coordinates for our big guns. That knee didn't stop him marching three times alongside civil rights leader Dr Martin Luther King Jr. in 1965. The most momentous one was the march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. It was on that march that... uh, we almost were killed by mobs who followed us, who taunted us, and who threatened us. And frankly, I felt more threatened. I felt in more danger of being killed than I did while in the, in the armed services. 
he spent decades as a social worker, retiring in 1972, but not slowing down. Hiking, travel, music and parties have been his passion, along with his wife, Dorothy. Of course, we've had ups and downs, but we made it on through. Each of us is willing to give the other some say-so. In other words, neither of us tries to rule the house. During the week, George Bogus lives here at the Veterans Affairs Community Living Centre in northwest D.C., home to one other centenarian. I can talk pretty good and I tell jokes too. Alice Dixon is quite the celebrity. At 105 years old, she has the energy levels of a woman decades younger. Her nails are fire engine red, her hair perfectly quaffed, and her jokes are ribald. They said, you got a bad one? I said, when you get 21, I'll tell you. (laughs) One of the first African-American women to join the Women's Army Corps in World War II, Mrs Dixon served in a postal directory battalion in Birmingham, England. She was feisty then and still is. I don't hold back anything. I tell it like it is. Sometimes that's good, sometimes it isn't. On her return, she worked at the Pentagon in purchasing, buying everything from pencils to planes, and finding a lifelong passion for shopping, along with casinos, bingo and church. What's your secret to your longevity? Being sharing and caring. Her physical therapist, Anne-Marie Wilson, says Mrs Dixon hasn't slowed down one bit, even after losing a leg to infection. Boundless, endless. She's like the energizer bunny. She just keeps going and going and going. And when she's sedentary, she's not happy. (laughs) The issue of race and colour is closest to her heart. This thing about colour is terrible because God made us all. We all eat and sleep and bathe and do everything alike. And it's a silly thing. She should know. A condition called vitiligo has paled her dark skin. Mrs Dixon now looks white. That's something that God planned. Yeah, nothing we can do about it. Two world wars, the Great Depression, the aviation age, telecommunications and the digital era and everything in between. These centenarians have witnessed a tumultuous, changing world. They are our living treasures, absolutely. I don't think people have enough opportunities to hear firsthand from people who've lived through so much. Is it nice to be thought of as a living treasure? <laughs> yeah. I just I feel like an old gal trying to help the young ones. Well, I think one of the things that my generation might be able to uh, teach others is just to have patience. You can't have everything at one time. More than 300 residents have now made it to DC's Centenarians Club. I'm Jill Colgan. You make me feel so young. You make me feel so spring is sprung. So here's a question. What happens when you put lots of energy into your work and still end up losing your job? From 2010 to 2012, Tanisha Williams Minor was the principal of Washington Metropolitan High School, or DC Met, an alternative high school in the district. And she's the subject of a new documentary called 180 Days, A Year Inside an American High School. It follows Minor's efforts to raise academic performance and reduce truancy at the school, which has some of the lowest standardized test scores in the city. There's no time to kick it and spend 15 minutes on a warm-up question, how was your summer? 
That ain't what it looks like in these parts because we know that the kids are walking in with these deficits and we know that every single second counts. Last year, DCPS informed Minor that her contract was not being renewed. She now works for the New York City Public Schools. And Minor recently sat down with special correspondent Kavitha Cardoza to talk about her time in D.C. There are scenes of you teaching cheerleaders a chant, encouraging educators, looking at data scores. You're such a compelling character in the documentary. Were you a good principal? I I think I was a great principal. I think that I was able to rally folks together to do good work. We really had students who were successful, who overcame obstacles, and and that to me is what makes a good principal. 10% of students were reading at grade level and 8% were for math. So how can you say that the students were successful? A success in and of itself was the fact that all of the students showed up to take the test and all of the students participated in outside preparation classes. The truth of the matter is, no, we we weren't able to move students from a third grade level to 10th grade proficiency or even in some cases from an eighth grade level to a 10th grade proficiency. But what we were able to do was ensure that every single student got better. Then that to me is a success. Towards the end of the documentary, your contract was not renewed. Basically, you were fired by DCPS. Why? I was never given a formal reason. I don't like to use the word fired. I prefer to use the term, or I prefer to say that my contract was not renewed. But to this date, I have not had actually a conversation with someone surrounding the termination of my contract. DCPS school officials told me they couldn't comment on personnel issues. According to the principals union, there have been almost 150 principal changes between 2008 and 2012 in DCPS. More than a third of DC public schools had a change of principal. The majority were fired. Part of the job of the principal is to rally the troops behind a common cause. So when all of a sudden the the main cheerleader for that common cause is removed, as a professional, I'm going to question, wow, does that mean what I've been doing all year has been wrong? As a student, you question, does that mean that I shouldn't have listened to this adult all year long because you don't think that she was the right adult? So folks start to get disengaged and they start to get desensitized because they feel like, oh, well, you might not be here at the end of the year or, oh, it doesn't really matter. I just need to wait you out. What do you hope people take away from this documentary? You know, it was tough when my contract was not renewed and I, I had to have the conversation with my close circle, when I had to have the conversation with my mother, when I had to have the conversation even with the film crew, right? There was a point when I was like, I'm sorry, you chose a horrible principle because clearly I'm bad. I couldn't even make it to the end of the year. Now that I'm getting past all of those things, I think that I really want people to take away that it's okay to know that you're doing the right thing in spite of folks telling you that you need to do it a certain way and it'll end up being okay because you'll have 100% of your seniors graduate. You'll have 100% of your seniors go to college. It doesn't matter that you think you said the wrong thing or you look too fat or everyone in the world now knows that you got fired because the work that you did speaks for itself. That was Tanisha williams Minor, the subject of a new documentary called 180 Days, speaking with WAMU's Kavitha Cardoza. We close today's show with Bookend, our monthly plunge into the region's literary scene. 
In this edition, I sat down with Anne Harding Woodworth at her home in the district's Woodley Park neighborhood. Woodworth isn't a D.C. native, but she's been here for 20 years. And you'd be hard-pressed to find someone more enthusiastic about what the city has to offer, especially to poets. So how early were you writing poetry and thinking about maybe even becoming a poet? Well, you know, I think everybody, every child um, dabbles in poetry. And I loved listening to poetry, but I wasn't in a family that... um, uh, no, it wasn't a, a poetry culture in the, my family. Um, they read, but they didn't... Poetry wasn't a big thing in my childhood. So um, in school, I, I listened to a lot of that wonderful rhyming poetry that kids get. And uh, then I started writing my own. But I never say that I started writing poetry when I was a child, because I, I think most children do that. I uh, started seriously when I was about 30, in my 30s, and um, we were living in Greece, and I, I was an expat in Athens, married to a Greek, um, and I missed the United States at times. I'd get to the United States and I'd miss Greece. So the first book that came out was called Guide to Greece and Back. (laughs) And it sort of uh, investigated that whole feeling of not belonging any place and wanting to be in the other place. In terms of trying to get published, what was your first experience there? Well, that was that first book that I wrote in Athens. Um, It was published by uh, the publishing company that I was working for. So that was <laughs> handy. Um, it was called Ekthosis Likavitos, which was a an English language publisher in Athens, and they published my first book. Then there was a hiatus. I came, we came back to the United States and um, back to Detroit, and I found that I I, I wanted to go to work, and there was a job at Chrysler Corporation, so I put away the poetry for about 15 years, and I worked for Chrysler. Was it well and truly away? Did you did you really kind of put it to the side? Yes. <laughs> you don't write uh, press releases about uh, sleek engines <laughs> or sleek cars um, and then go home and write poetry. At least I didn't. <laughs> it was impossible. So what allowed you to come back? So then um, I, my last job at Chrysler was in Germany. And while I was there, or while I was home on one of my, um, my visits back to Detroit, I met, I was divorced by then, and I met my husband. And my husband is one of these people who grew up with poetry around him all the time. His mother read to him constantly, and he memorized poem after poem. He's a walking poem. And uh, so that was very helpful to me when we moved to D.C., and I had left Chrysler by then. Um, I just went back to writing poetry full-time, and I had the support of a man that loves poetry. What is it like to be a working poet in a (laughs) town that's known for news and the government and the White House? Well, first of all, I feel Washington is probably the best city to be in for poetry. 
there's the Folger Shakespeare Library. There's the Library of Congress. There's the Writers' Center in Bethesda. There are, there's busboys and poets. There's the Iota Club, um, WordWorks. There is so much poetry going on here that I can't imagine being in a better place. There are just people all over who are lovers of poetry or who write poetry all over this city. And I think it's a wonderful um, contrast to what's going on in people's lives here. The, the constant news that we get and our interest in the government, uh, we need some relief from that. And poetry gives that to us. That was poet Anne Harding Woodworth speaking with me at her home in Woodley Park. And if you'd like to hear audio of Woodworth reading her poem, Wireless in Italy, visit our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Kavitha Cardoza, and Jared Walker, along with reporters Jill Colgan and Kate Sheehy. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Robbie Feinberg. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and is used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. All the music we use is listed on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing online anytime. You can also find us on iTunes and Stitcher. We hope you can join us next week when Rebecca Shear will be back in the host chair bringing you a show on faith. We'll hear about a Muslim community's plans to move to a rural part of Maryland and why that plan is ruffling some feathers. We'll also meet a pastor whose church recently burned to the ground and find out how that incident is testing his congregation's faith. And we'll visit a farm that's giving retired thoroughbred horses and the inmates who care for them a new lease on life. I would either be dead or be locked up for an extremely long amount of time if it wasn't for this program. I'm Jonathan Wilson, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.